Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 166, The Reign of Queen Margaret. This week I have to start with some notices. I shall be as brief as possible. First of all, a quick mensch for Liam. Hello Liam, hope it's all going well. Secondly, the Agora Podcast Network. The what? The Agora Podcast Network. Essentially what this is, is a group of us like-minded podcasters getting together to have fun. We thought we'd call it Agora, just like the marketplace of the ancient Greeks, full of chat and debate. Naked wrestlers as well, but we don't have any of those. It's early days, but we have a website you can go to and see lots of other great podcasts. It's called www.agorapodcastnetwork.com. I shall post a link on the website, but it's early days. And then finally, we agreed together that we'd let you know about other podcasts in the network. And so I'm going to recommend a podcast. The podcast is called When Diplomacy Fails by Zach, full of brio and enthusiasm with a great concept about how conflict starts and what impact it leaves. And us History of England folk already have an affinity with Zach, since his was one of the earliest guest episodes right back when he first started. But enough notices. Onward. Now York had struck lucky at St Albans. If that arrow had been just a few inches out and taken the king to his grave, his situation would have been almost impossible. All the nobility, pretty uncertain about what was, after all, a rebellion 
by a pretty small number of magnates, however individually powerful they might have been, the nobility would have been able to rally around the young, blameless prince. But as it was, it looked like a remarkably good result for York. The death of the Duke of Somerset solved his insoluble problem of how to deal with a Teflon-coated competitor on whom the charges of treason just would not stick. And meanwhile, he had a captive king through whom he could hopefully impose his will. And it had got to the point where really no one thought the king was a reasonable solution. As York, Salisbury and Warwick rode back with the king to Westminster, York's challenge was now to succeed where he'd already failed, to broaden the base of his support. In fact, the events at St Albans, however unavoidable he might have felt them, now gave him two further obstacles. Firstly, the opposition of the Queen would now be implacable. Margaret's best friend and supporter had been brutally murdered by a bunch of thugs in the mud and blood of the streets of St Albans. And secondly, a new element had entered national politics to join the factionalism and power struggle. Blood feud. Henry Beaufort, the 19-year-old heir as Duke of Somerset, had been pretty much finished at St Albans, badly hacked about and chucked onto a cart at death's door. Fortunately, he'd managed to point out that he wasn't dead yet, and in fact, was feeling a little better. And so Warwick took him into his custody to see him back to health and hopefully mend a few fences. My son Henry, if I may call you son, I just wanted to say how sorry I am that I had your dad dragged out of the pub and brutally cut up into small pieces in the streets of St Albans. Now, let's put that behind us, and from now on, we'll be best of chums. Here's my hand. What do you say? As far as the new Somerset was concerned, the only way the fence was going to be mended was with the entrails of York, Warwick and Salisbury. The same applied to the 20-year-old John Clifford, heir to the Thomas Clifford that had died at St Albans. As far as he was concerned, the Nevilles were evil parvenus, muscling in on his centuries-old power base in Westmoreland in the northwest of England and he'd butcher any Neville or member of the House of York that came his way. And then there were the Percys. Henry Percy succeeded to the earldom of Northumberland on his father's death at St Albans. His younger brother, Egremont, was still in jail, as was the implacable Exeter, though Egremont was in fact soon to escape. But the point is, here was a new generation for whom revenge now against the House of York and their allies was a matter of honour and a matter of blood. And at the centre of the apple was another really nasty, curly, wiggly worm eating away at the body politic. No one had solved that problem, how to rule without a king when the kingdom could not function without one. As Warwick, Salisbury and York came into London, there was a rather painful attempt to just pretend everything was normal, a sort of smile-and-wave situation to try to persuade everyone that Henry was still the king, still in control, and a fiction was brewed up that he'd just been horribly, horribly misled by a bunch of three nasties, Somerset amongst them, but that everything was okay now, back to normal. And to support this, a grand, crown-wearing ceremony was held in Westminster Cathedral. Slightly awkwardly, Henry insisted that it was in fact York 
that placed the crown on Henry's head rather than, say, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Not sure if he was trying to be helpful or actually make it absolutely clear to everyone about who was now driving the bus. But that's the way it was. The king now looked a shadow, even of his rather feeble former self. He looked weak and ill, and at the age of 34 was visibly crushed by the pain and criticism his rule had generated. For York, there were some encouraging signs, it seemed. A number of the lords that had stood with the king at St Albans were eager to rise above it all and try to arrive at unity. And central to them was Buckingham. But also, Devon was happy to renew his allegiance to York as well. York's allies, the Bourchier, were installed as great officers of state. One Bourchier, the Earl of Essex, was made treasurer, and another, Thomas Bourchier, the Archbishop of Canterbury, remaining as the Chancellor. Parliament was held in July, and York made a reasonable fist of getting a balanced attendance from lords, though, true to say, the numbers were small and dominated by churchmen. A man called John Wenlock, who had fought for the King at St Albans, but who will now begin to enter the story on the side of truth, light and justice, also known as the Yorkist side, was made Speaker of the House. Warwick, meanwhile, was made Captain of Calais as a reward, replacing Somerset. And it's worth talking a bit about Calais at this point, or at least I think it is, and it's my podcast. Because Calais was to be pretty important throughout the Wars of the Roses, and also throughout the 15th and for much of the 16th centuries. We tend to focus on Calais' military importance as a gateway into France and so on. But while that's partially true, many of the Hundred Years' War's invasions had bypassed the place, in fact. But it had another military importance. Calais was the only remaining place where a significant standing army was maintained. So whoever controlled this contingent of veteran soldiers had a very valuable asset in the great game. And then, it was important as a diplomatic listening post. We tend to concentrate on the Wars of the Roses as very much an internal affair, an English squabble. And this is perfectly reasonable to some degree, but it did also have a European dimension. France and Burgundy remained divided. Burgundy, with its ownership of Flanders in particular, became involved in the politics of Calais and marriage, if nothing else though both France and Burgundy seemed less keen to exploit the war than did Scotland. Scotland was rather more active in trying to take advantage of English disunity to grab back the odd town or two. But Calais throughout and after the wars was the best place to try and get yourself a European ally. It's also economically that Calais had a critical part to play. Calais was where the wool staple lived. The staple was a concept enshrined in English law in 1314 as the one place from which wool could be exported from England. For the Crown, this was a capital idea, allowing all exported wool to be taxed and governments do like things that make it easy to tax. The staple had moved all over the place, but in 1363 it had settled on Calais. This had a double benefit. It encouraged the growth of Calais without it having to be subsidised by taxation, except the garrison, of course. It made it easier for the merchants of Flanders and the continent to come and buy English wool. Everyone's a winner, Gov. 
a company was established to manage the staple, made up initially of 26 merchants. And the merchants of the staple of Calais were seriously not short of a bob or two. Their role in helping support the super-expensive garrison through loans was critical to control of the town. So there we go. Calais. However, Warwick was to have to wait for his prize. Once again, the garrison wouldn't accept him, any more than they'd accepted York. Once more, the lieutenant of Calais, Lord Rivers, was forced to report that his garrison's view was, you can give us a captain when you pay us. And in fact, it was to take until April 1456, until Warwick was actually able to take up his appointment. Meanwhile, the Commons in Parliament returned to the resumption. Remember the resumption idea? This was the idea that the king must live of his own, rather than having to tax people all the time, and that he'd given away too much land to various cronies by way of patronage, and therefore he needed to go back to those folk and get that land back so that he had the income from that land. You'll remember we've had two acts of resumption already, which have caused the king some grief in having to rip back grants of land from his mates, because his mates tended to be the very magnates on whom his reign depended. Once again, the commons insisted it hadn't been done well enough last time and would have to be done again. In 1455, York was totally of their mind, and therefore this was actually a good bonding opportunity between York and Parliament. Now then, I'm going to take you away from all this, and I'm going to take you down to darkest Devon, right down to the southwest of England. It's late at night, on October the 23rd, 1455. It's dark, and a man called Nicholas Radford, probably close to 70 years old, was at his manor in Devon. His wife, Thomasina, was ill and bedridden, and Nicholas had closed up for the night and turned in. Not much later, he was woken up by the sound of shouting, yelling and banging on the door. When he looked out to his horror, outside he saw a horde of 90 men with torches bearing the Courtney livery, and at their head, Thomas Courtney, son of the Earl of Devon. He rushed down to the door and a heated debate ensued, and Radford wisely realised that these were angry hotheads, discretion was the better part of valour, and so when Courtney promised he and his wife would be left alone, he let them inside and was forced to watch them ransack the place, including seeing his poorly wife rolled out of bed so that they could take the sheets. With relief, Radford watched the men leave, when, as he seemed to be going, Courtney called him outside and said his father, the Earl of Devon, was here and would speak with him. But it was a trick. Once outside... Thomas rode off, but Radford was surrounded by Courtney's men who cut his throat and left him for dead. Four days later, the coroner solemnly conducted the inquest and after careful and painstaking consideration of all the facts, declared the death to be a suicide and given that suicide was an offence against God, had his body thrown in a pit and crushed beyond recognition with stones. The coroner, incidentally, and I tell you this purely for information, of course, was called Henry Courtney. Just happened to be the Earl's second son. Spooky. Essentially, the Courtneys were desperate. 
despite the Earl of Devon's reconciliation with York after St Albans and his presence on the Council of State, York had no allies at court. His great rival, William Bonville, was cleverer and had the backing and support of the Poole family and so Bonville power continued to grow. Short of cash and influence, the Courtenays lashed out at Radford, a close associate and adviser of the Bonvilles. In December, things got even more out of hand. The Earl of Devon himself and his sons put together a private army of as many as a thousand men, and they marched on the city of Exeter, robbed the cathedral of all the money Radford had lodged there. And now it was outright war. And at Clist Heath near Exeter on the 12th of December, the private armies of Devon and Bonville slugged it out, and Devon, as the winner, ransacked whatever he could find. Now, in a funny kind of way, this was quite helpful to York. Certainly, if he was to succeed, re-establishing the power of the Crown to maintain law and order without factionalism was critical. And here was an opportunity for him to do this. At least partially in response to this crisis and the King's continuing illness, by November, York was once again being made protector of the realm. In this, as it happens, we're into more constitutional weirdness. The king was clearly not incapacitated as he'd been when he was mad. So why was a protector allowable? There was no precedence for this while the king was apparently in control. It was agreed that the protector was to draw his authority from the Council of State, and the Council of State drew it from the king, so his appointment could be reversed only by the king and lords in Parliament. And by this formula, for a while at least, it was hoped that a permanent solution to the king's rubbishness had been found, with York acting as a kind of deputy king. So, back to the Devon thing, York had apparently readmitted Devon to the halls of power, and could therefore not be accused of factionalism in repressing this prime example of magnate lawlessness. And so, in December 1455, he ordered Devon to attend him in Dorset, where York removed Devon from his role as Justice of the Peace and incarcerated him in the Tower of London. The protector was back, and the rule of law was back with him. Go, York! But, in fact, this was a high point. In fact, it's a blink-and-you've-missed-it high point, because York's second protectorate was over by February 1456. The reason was actually reasonably functional, rather than factional, as it were. The Commons in Parliament had insisted on a punitive new act of resumption. York was well in favour of the principle of resumption, but this particular bill would have been so severe that the Lords would never wear it, and the Lords required York's resignation, which was duly given. And it's true to say that York's Parliaments had been poorly attended. He'd never really managed to win the trust of the nobility outside his own supporters. But actually, rather remarkably, that was not the signal for York to be removed. This wasn't a coup. York, Salisbury and Warwick remained very much in place as royal councillors. And it really looks as though Henry had realised his own limitations and really, really wanted someone to take the pain of government off his drooping shoulders. And felt that person might as well be York. So Henry made sure that Warwick gained access to Calais at last. And until August 1456... York was still at his side. Essentially now, power was dependent on manipulating the feeble-minded king. And York had his ear for the moment. 
It's important, I think, to differentiate between Henry before his collapse in 1453 and after 1453. After 1453, he drifts in and out of incapacity. By and large, in a weak, feeble and ineffective way, he's actually a force for peace but far too feeble to hold back the tide. But on occasion, he asserted himself against the Queen and the implacable enemies of York and the Nevilles that gathered around him. Because while Henry might have been prepared to accept York in the interests of peace, Queen Margaret was anything but. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. She'd been opposed to York for some time in defense of her beloved Somerset, and then York had cut down and murdered her favorite and that was reason enough for Margaret to hate him. But in addition, the fear that York would threaten the succession of her son must also have been in the background already. So given the frailty of the king, whoever controlled the king held power. Henry and a small group like Buckingham might hold the queen back from her revenge, but Margaret from here on in had but one aim, to destroy York and anyone foolish enough to align themselves with him. And so in the first half of 1456, Margaret and York circled each other, watching each other, and waited. Margaret stayed away from court, staying with the prince at Tutbury in the west of England, and planned a coup d'etat. And meanwhile, York subtly made war on the Queen's supporters. York was actually away from court for a long period, acting as the king's deputy defending the Scottish borders, as James III of Scotland strove to take advantage of English disunity. But York's follower in Wales, William Herbert, made war on the Lancastrians in the form of Jasper and Edmund Tudor. In Herbert's war against the Tudors, he captured Carmarthen and Aberystwyth, and despite a short period in the tower, continued to make war on the Tudors in defence of York's Welsh estates. It's worth a quick note on William Herbert, if you'll forgive me, who will be the first full-blooded Welshman to enter the English peerage. A grandson on his mother's side of David Gam, the opponent of Glyndwr, who died for Henry V of Agincourt, Herbert was a Welsh knight, part of the York and Neville affinity. He had flair, energy and great loyalty to the Yorkist cause. But then, in August 1456, the Queen acted. As we've said, the key to power was to manipulate a helpless king, so who best to manipulate him than his wife? But York was close to the king. And also, London was no longer safe for either Henry or Margaret. The merchants were heartily sick of the feebleness of the English crown in dealing with piracy and the French and the disruption of trade. Also, the royal court kept allowing Italian merchants to buy and ship wool to Flanders under licence to raise a bit of cash and therefore bypass the staple at Calais. In London, the king was surrounded by Yorkists and difficult to control. So, the queen persuaded Henry to up sticks, shake the Middlesex clay of London from his slippers and move the court to the Midlands, at Coventry and Kenilworth. There, Margaret felt safe, in the Lancastrian heartlands, and there, Margaret could build the court around the king that she wanted. 
and so at Coventry the Queen built a new court and moved much of the machinery of government away from Westminster. The new court was not at home to Mr Duke of York and Mr Earl of Warwick and Salisbury. It was at home to Buckingham, the new young earls of Northumberland and Somerset, to Shrewsbury, Exeter, Pembroke, Wiltshire and Beaumont, all Lancastrians together. Even Courtney, the Earl of Devon, joined in, pardoned and restored by the Queen, who felt well able to ignore a little matter of murder and private war, in return for his support. And the Queen continued to build up her power base. The Nevilles in the north once again found themselves threatened by royal support for the Earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland. In Wales, the Queen took the King to sit in judgment on William Herbert, and by so doing, Jasper Tudor was at last firmly established as Earl of Pembroke. Other supporters of York, the Borchiers, were replaced as Chancellor and Treasurer by the Queen's men. For well over three years, in fact, there was to be no Parliament, an extraordinary situation by this time. But as long as expenditure was kept under control and foreign wars avoided, by running up just a bit of debt, the Queen could do without the pain of having to consult and compromise. The King's frailty and the Queen's dominance became obvious and public. The King was increasingly withdrawn from normal matters of royal life and state. Fully one-third of his time was spent in abbeys. The chronicler at the Abbey of Crowland observed the King during Lent when he withdrew to the Abbey to contemplate life and God. If there was any way he could get away from the pain of the world, Henry would do so. While on the other side of the coin... On the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross in September 1457, there was the Queen, rather than the King, who entered Coventry first. It was the Queen that was wined and dined by the good burghers and exalted by all manner of grandiose speeches. The King only got one brief mensch. The Queen's procession was preceded by a great sword, which a slightly shocked chronicler notes was only ever done for a King, never a Queen. Hate it or loathe it, England wasn't ready for this kind of queenly rule and was terribly horrified at the Queen's forthrightness. So as one chronicler wrote, the realm of England was out of all governance, for the King was simple, held no household, nor mentioned any wars. And yet, Margaret did not feel quite ready and able to move on York. And in fact, although York was rarely invited to court, and Salisbury never, York was confirmed in his job as Lieutenant of Ireland, and Warwick as Captain of Calais. But the Queen's hostility burned brightly. On two occasions, York was invited to attend a great council at Coventry. At first, a chronicler noted that York seemed to be on good terms with the King, but not with the Queen, who would have had him ambushed and attacked as he left, but Buckingham, still hoping for peace, warned York before the plan could be put into action. And then again in March 1457, York was summoned. This time, when he reached the council chamber, the assembled lords were waiting for him. Buckingham read out a long, patronising speech on the theme that York had troubled the realm for his own ambition. Buckingham, in more vengeful mode now, or maybe hoping to impress the Queen, knelt before the King and begged him to show no more mercy to York if he transgressed any more times. 
And then York had to go through the humiliation of swearing submission to the king and signing documents to boot. From York's point of view, these humiliations were quite enough to hate Margaret. Added to the fact that in his traditional medieval view, women had no right to rule, whereas he was a prince of the blood being prevented from carrying out his right and duty. Now, while all these extraordinary things were happening, another extraordinary thing was happening of a rather different kind. In 1455, Edmund Tudor, the Earl of Richmond, had been rewarded with the marriage to a fabulously rich Lancastrian heiress, Margaret Beaufort, just 12, the poppet. By 1456, 13-year-old Margaret was pregnant. And OK, customs and mores were different, context is everything and all, but really... By November 1456, Edmund was dead of the plague, and six months pregnant, the little Margaret fled to the safety of his brother Jasper Tudor at Pembroke, on the southwest coast of Wales. In December, the 13-year-old mother-to-be would have been taken to live apart from the rest of the castle in her own specially prepared rooms, saying goodbye to male company for a while, no doubt with some relief. In January 1457, she went into labour, which was apparently long and difficult, which really isn't a surprise, is it, for someone that young? Her small size was supposed to have been the problem, and she was expected to die. But somehow, both mother and son survived. Margaret's confessor later said, It seemed a miracle that of so little a personage anyone should have been born at all. Forty days or more after the birth, Margaret would have gone for her churching, or purification. And at some point also Jasper Tudor rocked up and pronounced that Owen would be a good name, just like the little boy's grandfather. Who knows how this whole experience affected Margaret, physically or mentally. Margaret Beaufort will be around for quite a while, and she'll prove to be a formidable character, firmly convinced of her own mind and will compete with Margaret of Anjou in her determination to fight for the rights of her son. But despite being married again, this is the only child she will have. On her death, her confessor said of her, she was never yet in that prosperity, but that the greater it was the more always she dread the adversity. Which I think means she was a glass-half-empty kind of person. And you can imagine that having a child in line for the crown during the Wars of the Roses would make you feel a little twitchy. But determination she had in spades. So when Jasper rocked up with his Owens and all that, little Margaret put her foot down and insisted on a name more suitable for someone in line for the English throne, and so the baby was christened Henry Tudor. By 1458, Margaret had a new husband, Henry Stafford, the son of the Duke of Buckingham. She remained the Countess of Richmond and her son the Earl of Richmond. But for the next 13 years, she and Stafford seemed to have enjoyed a happy marriage, as far as one can tell. So, back to the main story then. From Coventry and the Lancastrian heartlands for a while, the Queen ruled England through Henry. It's an odd period, a sort of phony war, without parliaments, with York carefully avoiding conflict. A court dominated by the men Margaret can trust. Buckingham, Exeter, Arundel, Shrewsbury, Wiltshire, Audley. There she built a power base for when the time was right to strike. 
Courtney had been pardoned for his sins and become a fervent supporter of the Lancastrians, making war on the Bonvilles with the help of Exeter and Wiltshire. Jasper Tudor won back control of West Wales from William Herbert. Lord Stanley in the North West was courted and fated. Normal, consensual political life was dead. It feels a little like the personal rule of Charles I. As long as there was no horrid expenditure or war, Parliament could be avoided and the Queen could rule without hindrance. It could be that, just as it would be for Charles, that it was war that broke the status quo. In the summer of 1457, rumour of a planned French naval raid on the south coast saw Exeter appointed as Keeper of the Sea. But sadly, Exeter was an idiot and didn't have all. Pierre de Brez, who incidentally would prove to be a loyal supporter of the Queen in future years, descended unopposed with fire and sword on the town of Sandwich. It's difficult to take Sandwich seriously, given its association with two slices of bread, but of course it was a major town in the Cinque Ports and a centre of English naval power. And in August 1457, de Brez and 4,000 of his closest friends captured and sacked Sandwich. To this day, the mayor of Sandwich wears a black robe in memory of the black deeds of that day. The event brought the exiled court back to London. The raid had brought back to everyone in the clearest, most brutal way just how low England had sunk. Once the scourge of the French, but now the French were doing all the scourging. The king had to do something to sort this out. As it happens, the raid on Sandwich seems to have coincided with the return of the king's will and consciousness. Bless his cotton socks, the king wanted unity and saw that his wife was not creating that unity. He reasserted himself. Darling, we're going to London. In the autumn of 1457, then, a great council was called to deal, said the king, with the evils of dissension amongst the lords. As a result, London was soon bulging with young men wearing the badges of their masters, and the smell of testosterone rose gently with the morning mist. It was a recipe for disaster. One spark, and you'd have a massive conflict. You'd have to give a daft name to, like, mm, don't know, the Wars of the Roses. But slightly surprisingly, the almost inevitable war didn't happen. In fact, after an initial appearance, the king was largely absent from the discussions, which makes it all the more impressive that some sort of agreement was in fact worked out. In the White Chamber, Salisbury and York agreed to an accommodation. Yes, they could understand that it had been unfortunate that they'd attacked and hacked down the fathers of the current Dukes of Somerset, Earl of Northumberland and Lord Clifford. Yes, they could see that their families were a little miffed. So a deal was worked out. York, Salisbury and Warwick would effectively pay compensation and also pay 45 quid to the St Albans Abbey so that masses could be read for the souls of the dead and get them on the fast track through purgatory. Plus, then they all agreed to kiss and make up and had the rather extraordinary idea of a love day. You might well ask. The idea was to get everyone together to sink their differences and learn to love each other again. So everyone, putting the most vicious enemies together into pairs arm in arm, would dress up in their Sunday best and walk through the middle of London to go to the church, there to sing and pray together. 
All the Londoners watching would go to bed and sleep deeply reassured that everything was OK again. The warring factions had learned to love each other and they chatted happily. In addition to which, of course, the walk would do them all good. There's something like a bit of fresh air. And so, on March 25th, Lady Day, the daft procession set off. Out of the traps up front was the young Duke of Somerset, with the 58-year-old killer of his father, Salisbury. Morning, morning. Next came Exeter, probably dribbling with fury, with Warwick on his arm. The king wandered along in the middle, and at the end came Richard of York and Margaret of Anjou. As they walked along to St Paul's Cathedral, curious onlookers could hear a strange sound. The sound turned out to be the grinding of noble teeth. It brings back a memory of my brother and I forced to sit and sing in the church choir. It wasn't a popular decision. We had to wear silly cassocks and girly, frilly ruffs. The pain lives with me still. Plus, we had to sit together. I remember one happy occasion doing our best to look angelic from the neck up above the line of the pew, while a furious fight went on below. And I imagine it was something similar on Love Day. Oops, sorry Maggie, just trod on your foot. So sorry. Of course, the deer on the love day achieved absolutely zip because it didn't change the fundamental problem that the king was weak and the queen ruled in favour of a faction to promote the Beauforts. Worn out by all the walking around, the king lost interest again and the queen was able to take him back to Coventry in the Midlands. Disorder and misrule continued, unrestrained violence between lords in East Anglia, the south-west Wales and the marches. The Queen continued to build her power base and dismiss Yorkist officials. We'll leave England in the calm before the storm then. Next time, the Wars of the Roses will become just that. Roses. No, not roses, wars. Anyway, I have some donors to thank. Donors. Now look, I had a note on the website from Paul. He noted that I had been saying for, ooh, let me think now, three years? about some people called donators. Paul noted to me there is, of course, no such word. So all of you lot have been listening to me use a non-existent word for three years and said absolutely nothing. Is that what we're saying here? I think so. You might have told me. Anyway, donors this week. My thanks to regular donors, Alan, Nancy, William, Brad, Matthew, Cool, and Jabal. And thanks to new donors, Tom, Paul and Barbara. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to check out the Agora Network and Zach's When Diplomacy Fails. And thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes, all that sort of thing. Uh, Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.